0: me out to get an extra pail of air. I would just about scooped it full, and most of the warmth had leaked from my fingers when I saw the thing. You know, at first I thought it was a young lady. Yeah, a beautiful young lady's face, all glowing in the dark, and looking at me from the fifth floor of the opposite apartment, which hereabouts is the floor just above the white blanket of frozen air. I'd never seen a live young lady before, except in the old magazines. Sis is just a kid, and Ma's pretty sick and miserable, and it gave me such a start that I dropped the pail. And who wouldn't, knowing everyone on Earth was dead, except Pa and Ma and Sis and you? Even at that, I don't suppose I should have been surprised. We all see things now and then. Now, Ma has some pretty bad ones to judge from the way she bugs her eyes at nothing and just screams and screams and huddles back against the blankets hanging around the nest. Pa says it's natural we should react like that sometimes. When I'd recovered the pail and could look again at the opposite apartment, I got an idea of what Ma might be feeling at those times. For I saw it wasn't a young lady at all, but simply a light, a tiny light that moved stealthily from window to window, just as if one of the cruel little stars had come down out of the airless sky to investigate why the earth had gone away from the sun and maybe to hunt down something to torment or terrify now that the earth didn't have the sun's protection. I tell you, the thought of it gave me the creeps. I just stood there shaking and almost froze my feet and did frost my helmet so solid on the inside that I I couldn't have seen the light even if it had come out of one of the windows to get me. Then I had the wit to go back inside. Pretty soon I was feeling my familiar way through the 30 or so blankets and rugs paws got hung around to slow down the escape of air from the nest, and I wasn't quite so scared. I began to hear the tick-ticking of the clocks in the nest and knew I was getting back into air because... There's no sound outside in the vacuum, of course. Let me tell you about the nest. It's low and snug, just room for the four of us and our things. The floor is covered with thick woolly rugs. Three of the sides are blankets, and the blankets roofing it touch Pa's head. He tells me it's inside a much bigger room, but I've never seen the real walls or ceiling. Against one of the blankets is a big set of shelves with tools and books and other stuff, and on top of it, a whole row of clocks... Paul's very fussy about keeping him wound. He says, we must never forget time. The fourth wall has blankets all over, except around the fireplace, in which there is a fire that must never go out. It keeps us from freezing, and it does a lot more besides. Now, one of us must always watch it. Some of the clocks are alarm, and we can use them to remind us. In the early days, there was only Ma to take turns with Paul. I think of that when she gets difficult. But now there's me to help, too, and Sis. It's Pa, who's the chief guardian of the fire, though. I always think of him that way. A tall man sitting cross-legged, frowning anxiously at the fire, his lined face golden in its light, and every so often carefully placing on it a piece of coal from the big heap beside it. Paul tells me there used to be guardians of the fire sometimes in the very old days. Vestal virgins, he calls them. Although there was unfrozen air all around then, and you didn't really need one. He was sitting just that way now, though he got up quick to take the pail from me and bawl me out for loitering. He'd spotted my frozen helmet right off. That roused Ma, and she joined in picking on me. She's always trying to get the load off her feelings, Pa explains. Sis let off a couple of silly squeals, too. Pa handled the pail of air in a twist of cloth. Now that it was inside the nest, you could really feel its coldness. It just seemed to suck the heat out of everything. Even the flames cringed away from it as Paul put it down close by the fire. Yet it's that glimmery white stuff in the pail that keeps us alive. It slowly melts and vanishes and refreshes the nest and feeds the fire. Paul always keeps a big reserve supply of it in buckets behind the first blankets, along with extra coal and cans of food and other things, such as pails of snow to melt for water. You see, when the earth got cold, all the water in the air froze first and made a blanket ten feet thick or so everywhere. And then down on top of that, drop the crystals of frozen air, making another white blanket 60 or 70 feet thick, maybe. Of course, all the parts of the air didn't freeze and snow down at the same time. First to drop out was the carbon dioxide. When you're shoveling for water, you have to make sure you don't go too high and get any of that stuff mixed in, for it would put you to sleep, maybe for good, make the fire go out. Now, next there's the nitrogen, which doesn't count one way or the other, though it's the biggest part of the blanket. On top of that, and easy to get at, which is lucky for us, there's the oxygen that keeps us alive. Pa says we live better than kings ever did, breathing pure oxygen, but we're used to it and don't notice. Finally, at the very top, there's a slick of liquid helium, which is funny stuff. All these gases in neat separate layers. Like a pussy cafe, Pa laughingly says, whatever that is. I was busting to tell him all about what I'd seen. And so as soon as I ducked out of my helmet, and while I was still climbing out of my suit, I cut loose. Right away, Ma got nervous and began making eyes at the entry slit in the blankets and wringing her hands together. I could tell that Pa was annoyed at me scaring her and wanted to explain it all the way quickly, yet could see I wasn't fooling. And it didn't look like stray electricity, or crawling liquid, or... No, he wasn't just making up those ideas. Odd things happen in a world that's about as cold as can be, and just when you think matter would be frozen dead, it takes on a strange new life. A uh, Slimy stuff comes crawling towards the nest, just like an animal snuffing for heat. That's the liquid helium. And once, when I was little, a bolt of lightning, not even Pa could figure out where it came from hit the nearby steeple, and crawled up and down it for weeks until the glow finally died. It's not like anything I ever saw, I told him. He stood for a moment, frowning. Then, I'll go out with you and you show it to me, he said. I'm ma raised a howl at the idea of being left alone, and Sis joined in too, but Pa quieted up. We started climbing into our outside clothes. Mine had been warming by the fire. Pa made them. They have plastic headpieces that were once... Big, double-duty, transparent food cans, but they keep heat and air in and can replace the air for a little while, long enough for our trips, for water and coal and food and so on. Sis, Pa said quietly, come wash the fire. Keep an eye on the air, too. If it gets low or doesn't seem to be boiling fast enough, fetch another bucket from behind the blanket. But mind your hands. Use the cloth to pick up the bucket. Pa led the way, and I took hold of his belt. It's a funny thing. I'm not afraid to go by myself, but when Pa's along, I always want to hold on to him. Habit, I guess, and then there's no denying that this time I was a bit scared. I don't know what the city looked like in the old days, but now it's beautiful. The starlight lets you see pretty well. There's quite a bit of light in those steady points, speckling the blackness above. Pa says the stars used to twinkle once, but that was because there was air. We are on a hill, and the shimmery plain drops away from us and then flattens out, cut up into neat squares by the troughs that used to be streets. I sometimes make my mashed potatoes look like it before I pour on the gravy. Some taller buildings push out of the feathery plain, topped by rounded caps of air crystals like the fur hood ma wears, only whiter. On those buildings, you can see the darker squares of windows, underlined by white dashes of air crystals. Some of them are on a slant, for many of the buildings are pretty badly twisted by the quakes and all the rest that happened when the dark star captured the earth. Here and there a few icicles hang, water icicles from the first days of the cold, other icicles of frozen air that melted on the roofs and dripped and froze again. Sometimes one of those icicles will catch the light of a star and send it to you so brightly you think the star has swooped into the city. That was one of the things Paul had been thinking of when I told him about the light. I thought of it myself first and known it wasn't so. He touched his helmet to mine so we could talk easier, and he asked me to point out the windows to him. But there wasn't any light moving around inside them now or anywhere else. To my surprise, Pa didn't bawl me out and tell me I'd been seeing things. He looked all around quite a while after filling his pail, and just as we were going inside, he whipped around without warning, as if to take some peeping thing off guard. The old peace was gone. There was something lurking out there, watching, waiting getting ready? It's hard to hide your feelings about such a thing. When we got back into the nest and took off our outside clothes, Paul laughed about it all and told him it was nothing and kidded me for having such an imagination, but his words fell flat. He didn't convince Ma and Sis any more than he did me. Something had to be done, and almost before I knew what I was going to say, I heard myself asking Paul to tell us about the old days and how it all happened. He sometimes doesn't mind telling that story, and Sis and I sure like to listen to it, and he got my idea. So we were all settled around the fire in a wink, and Ma pushed up some cans to thaw for supper, and Paul began. Before he did, though, I noticed him casually get a hammer from the shelf and lay it down beside him. He told us how the earth had been swinging around the sun, ever so steady and warm, and the people on it fixing to make money and wars and have a good time and get power and treat each other right or wrong, when without warning there comes charging out of space this dead star This burned-out sun and upsets everything. First off, they thought it would hit the sun, and then they thought it would hit the earth. And there was even the start of a rush to get to a place called China because people thought the star would hit on the other side. But then they found out it wasn't going to hit either side, but was going to come very close to the earth. The sun and the newcomer fought over the earth for a little while. Pulling it this way and that like two dogs growling over a bone, Pa described at this time. And then the newcomer won and carried us off. That was the time of the monster earthquakes and floods. Twenty times worse than anything before. It was also the time of the big jerk, as Pa calls it, when all earth got yanked suddenly. Just as Pa has done to me once or twice, grabbing me by the collar to do it when I've been sitting too far from the fire. You see, the dark star was going through space faster than the sun and in the opposite direction, and it had to wrench the world considerably in order to take it away. The big jerk didn't last long, but it was over as soon as the Earth was settled down in its new orbit around the dark star. But it was pretty terrible while it lasted. Pa says that all sorts of cliffs and buildings toppled Oceans slopped over. Swamps and sandy deserts gave great sliding surges that buried nearby lands. Earth was almost jerked out of its atmosphere blanket, and the air got so thin in spots that people keeled over and fainted. Though, of course, at the same time, they were getting knocked down by the big jerk, and maybe their bones broke or skulls cracked. We've often asked Paul how people acted during that time, whether they were scared or brave or crazy or stunned or all four. But he's sort of leery of the subject, and he was again tonight. He says he was mostly too busy to notice. You see, Pa and some scientist friends of his had figured out part of what was going to happen. They'd known we'd get captured, and our air would freeze, and they'd been working like mad to fix up a place with airtight walls and doors and insulation against the cold and big supplies of food and fuel and water with bottled air. But the place got smashed in the last earthquakes, and all Pa's friends were killed then and in the big jerk. So he had to start over and throw the nest together quick without any advantages, just using any stuff he could lay his hands on. I guess he's telling pretty much the truth when he says he didn't have any time to keep an eye on how other folks behaved, either then or in the big freeze that followed. Followed very quick, you know, both because the Dark Star was pulling us away very fast and because Earth's rotation had been slowed in the tug-of-war so that the nights were ten old nights long. Still, I've got an idea of some of the things that happened from the frozen folk I've seen a few of them in other rooms of our building, others clustered around the furnaces in the basements where we go for coal. In one of the rooms, an old man sits stiff in a chair. In another, a man and a woman are huddled together in a bed with heaps of covers over them. You can just see their heads peeking out close together. And in another, a beautiful young lady is sitting with a pile of wraps huddled around her, looking hopefully towards the door, as if waiting for someone who never came back with warmth and food. All of a sudden, I got an idea that scared me worse than anything yet. You see, I just remembered the face I thought I'd seen in the window. I'd forgotten about that, on account of trying to hide it from the others. What, I asked myself, if the frozen folk were coming to life? What if they were like the liquid helium that got a new lease on life and started crawling toward the heat just when you thought its molecules ought to freeze solid forever? What if the ever-growing cold, with the temperature creeping down the last few degrees to the last zero had mysteriously wakened the frozen folk to life. Not warm-blooded life, but something icy and horrible. Creeping, crawling, snuffing their way, following the heat to the nest. I tell you, that thought gave me a very bad turn, and I wanted very badly to tell the others my fears, but I remembered what Pod said and clenched my teeth and didn't speak. We were all sitting very still. Even the fire was burning silently. There was just the sound of Pa's voice and the clocks and then from beyond the blankets I thought I heard a tiny noise my skin tightened all over me Paul was telling about the early years in the nest and had come to the place where he philosophizes life's always been a business of working hard and fighting the cold Paul was saying the earth's always been a lonely place millions of miles from the next planet and no matter how long the human race might have lived the end would have come some night Those things don't matter. What matters is that life is good. It has a lovely texture, like some rich cloth or fur or the petals of flowers. You've seen pictures of those, but I can't describe how they feel. It makes everything else worthwhile. And that's as true for the last man as the first. And still the steps kept shuffling closer. It seemed to me that the inmost blanket trembled and bulged a little, just as if they were burned onto my imagination. I kept seeing those peering frozen eyes. So right then and there, Paul went on, and now I could tell that he heard the steps too and was talking aloud so that we maybe wouldn't hear him. Right then and there, I told myself that I was going on as if we had all eternity ahead of us. I'd have children and teach them all I could. I'd get them to read books. I'd plan for the future, try to enlarge and seal the nest. I'd do what I could to keep everything beautiful and growing. But then the blanket actually did move and lift. "'and there was a bright light somewhere behind it.' Pa's voice stopped, and his eyes turned to the widening slit, "'and his hand went out until it touched "'and gripped the handle of the hammer beside him. "'In through the blanket stepped the beautiful young lady. "'She stood there looking at us in the strangest way, "'and she carried something bright and unwinking in her hand, "'and two other faces peered over her shoulders, "'men's faces, white and staring.' "'Well, my heart couldn't have been stopped for more than four or five beats "'before I realized she was wearing a suit and helmet, "'like Pa's homemade ones, only fancier, "'and that the men were too, "'and that the frozen folks certainly wouldn't be wearing those. "'Also, I noticed that the bright thing in her hand was just a kind of flashlight. "'The silence kept on while I swallowed hard a couple of times, "'and after that there was all sorts of jabbering and commotion. "'They were simply people, you see.' We hadn't been the only ones to survive, we just thought so for natural enough reasons. These three people had survived, and quite a few others with them. And when we found out how they had survived, Paul let out the biggest whoop of joy. They were from Los Alamos, and they were getting their heat and power from atomic energy. Just using the uranium and plutonium intended for bombs, they had enough to go on for thousands of years. They had a regular little airtight city with airlocks and all. They even generated electric light and grew plants and animals by it. At this, Paul let out a second whoop, waking Ma from her faint. But if we were flabbergasted at them, they were double flabbergasted at us. One of the men kept saying, But it's impossible. I tell you, you, you can't maintain an air supply without hermetic sealing. It's simply impossible. That was after he had got his helmet off and was using our air Meanwhile, the young lady kept looking around us as if we were saints and telling us we'd done something amazing. And suddenly she broke down and cried. By now, all five adults were talking like 60. Pa was demonstrating to the men how he worked the fire and got rid of the ice in the chimney and all that. Ma had perked up wonderfully and was showing the young lady her cooking and sewing stuff and even asking about how the women dressed at Los Alamos. The strangers marveled at everything and praised it to the skies. I could tell from the way they wrinkled their noses that they found the nest a bit smelly. But they never mentioned that at all and just asked bushels of questions. In fact, there was so much talking and excitement that Pa forgot about things. And it wasn't until they were all getting groggy that he looked and found the air had all boiled away in the pail. He got another bucket of air quick from behind the blankets. Funny thing, though, I didn't do much talking at all. And Sis hung on to Ma all the time and hid her face when anybody looked at her. I felt pretty uncomfortable and disturbed myself. "'even about the young lady. "'Glimpsing her outside there, "'I'd had all sorts of wishy thoughts, "'but now I was just embarrassed and scared of her, "'even though she tried to be as nice as anything to me. "'I sort of wished they'd all quit crowding the nest "'and let us be alone and get our feelings straightened out. "'I could see something of the same feeling struck Pa and Ma, too. "'Pa got very silent all of a sudden, "'and Ma kept telling the young lady, "'But I wouldn't know how to act there, "'and I haven't any clothes.' "'The strangers were puzzled like anything at first. But then they got the idea. As Pa kept saying, it just doesn't seem right to let this fire go out. Well, the strangers are gone, but they're coming back. It hasn't been decided yet just what will happen. Maybe the nest will be kept up as what one of the strangers called a survival school. Or maybe we'll join the pioneers who are going to try to establish a new colony at the uranium mines at Great Slave Lake or in the Congo. Of course, now that the strangers are gone, I've been thinking a lot about Los Alamos and those other tremendous colonies. I have a hankering to see him for myself. Yes, me, Paul wants to see him too. He's been getting pretty thoughtful watching Ma and Sis perk up. It's different now that we know others are alive, he explains to me. Your mother doesn't feel so hopeless anymore. Neither do I, for that matter. Not having to carry the whole responsibility for keeping the human race going, so to speak. It scares a person. I looked around at the blanket walls and the fire and the pails of air boiling away and Ma and Sis sleeping in the warmth and the flickering light. It's not going to be easy to leave the nest, I said, wanting to cry, kind of. It's so small and there's just the four of us. I get scared at the idea of big places and a lot of strangers. He nodded and put another piece of coal on the fire. Then he looked at the little pile and grinned suddenly and put a couple of handfuls on, just as if it were one of our birthdays or Christmas. You'll quickly get over that feeling, son, he said. The trouble with the world was that it kept getting smaller and smaller till it ended with just a nest. Now it'll be good to have a real huge world again, the way it was in the beginning. I guess he's right. You think the beautiful young lady will wait for me till I grow up? I'll be 20 in only 10 years. Hello. That was an abridged version of A Pale of Air by Fritz Leiber. My apologies go out to Mr. Leiber's loved ones for pronouncing his name Lieber last week and for saying that this story was written in 1958. It was actually written in 1951. With that out of the way, uh, my fellow host is Mark Sinker, and our guest today is Tom Ewing. Tom
1: um, you were told we'd be talking about this story today. When you read it, what did you think? I thought it was—it's a, a, a very interesting story. Um, I'd never actually read any Fritz Leiber before. Um, I'd known his name from another context. Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: right. I, to I, say.
1: I, um, I, I guess we'll get on to that. In yeah, we will. Know. I mean he was—he was, he was a, a revered figure in um, in role playing games, which I used to play a, a lot of because he'd inspired Dungeons and Dragons. So it was very interesting that he had this sort of interdisciplinary fictional career. He wrote horror. He wrote sci fi. He wrote. Um, Fantasy, obviously. What, what do you think of this story in particular? Well, I think this story is interesting because of the way it sort of it leaves you in in a kind of um, in limbo as to what sort of story it is. Mm-hmm. For it's it's a it's a fantastic story, in, in a way, it's you know a, a kind of completely alien environment. And there's about an alien environment, but then it yeah. also has these overtones of kind of horror and cosmic horror, and you don't know what the creature's going to be. You don't you know sort of is it is it this crawling liquid? Is it some kind of strange cosmic beast from the dark star yeah um and so there's this very sort of like high horror element to it and then suddenly it resolves itself and you into like a, that a very hopeful story um yeah i did i mean i thought that was that was one of the i what i liked about it i think was the the environment um element because that's always been something that's attracted me to science fiction writing and stories this sort of these stories of, of really kind of unimaginable environments and 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 people in them it's a it's a family story as well, and I think the the women in the family get a, a certain amount of, of of short shrift. That jumped out. I mean, I don't think a writer writing this story now would, or, or a story like this now would would be so sort of squeamish about having the family not survive. And I suspect actually that a writer in the in the kind of early part of the century probably would have just kind of ignored the women or assumed that they. Mark, do you agree with that?
2: Um, well, I, I think I think that this story is is actually more emotionally deft than it at first appears, and I think you have to remember that it's it's told by a ten year old child, so that the um, the role of the women of his little sister and his mum is is not their role as seen by an objective narrator who could speak for them. Yeah. It's, it's it's the role of a, a Child who idolises his dad, and you know, doesn't idolise his little sister because that's not what ten-year-old boys do. Um, and and isn't he isn't seeing the story from an objective perspective at all? He's telling the story, and, and we're, I think some of the emotional power of it is arrives as you sort of move through the way the story is being told to thinking about what it actually might mean for the other characters and And, to be honest, I think that's quite an unusual uh aspect of it. I think it's actually quite a rich story for that reason, and I think it's it's unusually um graceful in the way it it deals with the it deals with its narrative in a in this oblique way it It feels as if it was written in a in a different or being developed in a different period than when it actually was written somehow It feels like a at the minimum, a sort of sixties or later than that.
0: Um, the thing that frames the whole story is this, as Tom said, this extreme environment, this this very extreme situation that they all find themselves in. Now, which one of you is going to tell me who Emmanuel Velikovsky was?
2: <laughs> um, well, he's a, a a kind of famous fake science enough case <laughs> from. Uh, he he was a psychiatrist, in fact, Freudian psychiatrist in the 20s and uh, started um, exploring some idea of his own based on Freud's um, From Moses to Monotheism, or whatever it's called, um, which was about Akhenaten and Egypt. And and obviously, you know, the whole thing about pyramids is that they may not be that mystical, but some people shouldn't go anywhere near them because they immediately (laughs) lose their brains. And Velikovsky was clearly one of them. And he developed this theory um, that the great myths of uh, the uh, religions of the world, myths and whatever, they they uh, had stories which involved various catastrophes. And he was convinced that these catastrophes had, first of all, that they had real world, real historical analogs, so that if it talked about a flood, then there had been a flood. Uh, which is not in itself such an insane idea, but then he decided that all all of these catastrophes could be explained by bodies in the solar system, planets and the moon and whatever, leaving their the orbits that they have had ever since whenever right and passing close to the earth in such a way as to part the Red Sea <laughs> and then going back <laughs> yeah. to where they were. <laughs>
0: So, so he, I mean, so he had i'm the,
2: simplifying it a little bit because it was quite yeah. a complex theory to explain quite a lot of things yeah. but i'm not simplifying <laughs> <it> enough <laughs> to uh make it more mad than it actually is
0: well the, the and <laughs> this story uh has a similar sort of uh explanation for what has happened to the earth there's there's this uh there's this dark star yeah, that
1: is, it's 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 basically it's past close to the sun and, and has sort of battled it out with the sun for possession of of Earth. Who gets the other planets, I'm not sure, is,
0: now, I've, is revealed. Th- this um, may sound as far-fetched as Velikovsky, but there's an uh, academic article written uh, in association with the uh, NASA Ames Research Center and the Physics Department of the University of Michigan. This is from Gregory Laughlin and Fred C. Adams, and their abstract, uh, th- their, their uh, piece is called The Frozen Earth, Binary Scattering Events and the Fa- Fate of the Solar System. And the abstract says that uh, planetary systems that encounter passing stars – I wasn't aware oh. that orbit <laughs> around another bad. star is <laughs> such a thing – can experience severe orbital disruption when the impinging systems are binary pairs or that goes on. Um, um, in addition, the odds of yada, 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 the surface biosphere would rapidly shut down under conditions of zero insulation. But the Earth's radioactive heat is capable of maintaining life deep underground and perhaps in hydrothermal vent communities for some time to come. The premise is not actually as (laughs) far-fetched as as it may sound.
1: I mean it's also – it's not – like Leiber wasn't the the first writer to explore it. There's an H.G. Wells short story called The Star from – I think 1910.
0: Do it produce a similar kind of environment on on Earth? It,
1: it doesn't. No, that's about uh, the star doesn't doesn't beat our sun to get Earth. It just comes near enough that um, horrible things happen to the planet and civilization collapses, and then kind of in the end, well, sort of well, not wimps out exactly, but <laughs> but you've you've got sort of oh you know we're all doomed, um, and then. OK, then we weren't.
0: I mean, they, I, I, just, <laughs> I, I just read you that, that abstract and try to claim that there's this, uh, you know, real uh, believability to the story. But frankly, there are some things that are just very difficult uh, to believe, going out and fetching a pail of air, actually being able to survive in these things. Um, and last week, uh, for instance, we talked about who goes there and about uh, how there was this blood test and little bits of blood would uh, scurry away from uh, an electrified Wire, which really just uh, – but there are other things about the story that just drive you through moments like yeah. that. And I think
1: this story does too. It gets you over the hump of disbelief. And how, how does it do that, Tom? I think because you're, you're reading it for the, for the ideas, not for the science. I mean certainly, yes, there is that hump of disbelief. I think the, the, the passage where he's talking about how all the water freezes first and then one type of gas and then another type of gas and you've, you've got this sort of like a, a, a pussy cafe –
2: um. <laughs> yes, I don't know what that is. I don't either. know what it is either, so <laughs> it's obviously only the father knows. Yeah, only the father knows, and it's it's probably some sort of 50s joke that the son says this because he doesn't really know what it is. And cafe yeah. is obviously, it's some sort of it's coffee, you know, iced coffee kind of thing. I mean, you, 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 in you saw layers, actually in, in
1: kind of sort of home decoration, old home decoration manuals and sort of cookbooks and stuff, These the big jars with the lead. The layered um, layers of, <laughs> of, of of beans and and such like, so something like that for kind of different types of coffee. But anyway, um, that that was the point at which my my sort of believability is, like, is sort of it was it was just a little bit too pat, mm-hmm. I guess. That mm-hmm. he's,
2: I, I think the thing that I like about it is that he 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 sort of dares you to um, to go along with it, and when the scientists arrive, they say the solution that the family have um, built to to keeping the air in one place and keeping warm, the scientists who are kind of togged up a la proper science yeah. fiction in in suits that have been designed at Los Alamos, they say, but this is impossible. Mm. <laughs> and, and which is, like, we're just sort of saying, yeah, you know, I've me getting liberated. I'm telling a story.
0: So so how is it that that doesn't impinge on your enjoyment? I
2: think I that think what – it goes back to the thing that I think – is deft about this story i think one of the reasons it that that it works is that he he's constantly teasing you as to what kind of a story it is and so it has these um these different elements which are layered into each other in one sense it's a it's a frontier story really it's it's a family living in very bleak conditions sort of look you know as as it were on the prairie in the 1840s yeah and you know the fact it's called the pale of air somehow the the idea that this this implement is so central to your life is redolent of of frontier survivorship and something like that and then it has these elements of horror and the the strange crawling frozen gas and the sort of glinting cold lights which might be ghosts in the opposite house and and there be, behind the story of the dark star, there's this very kind of likely told story of what was going on on Earth before the star arrived, which is it seems like it was gearing up to a nuclear war, and and he he keeps this very very sort of it, it's not stated at all. It's just you feel that that's what he's talking about, and I think that that playing with the the layers of of where the story could be going and what he could be doing with it. I think that that easily takes you past the sense of because if it's a ghost story, you, I mean if you're if you're reading a Lovecraft story and you say, "Hang on, this isn't scientifically reasonable." Yeah. Then then Lovecraft would say to you, I, "You know, I think you've rather missed the point of my story." And I think Laby is very effectively um dodging your sort of uh harumph by just moving the story a little bit aside from where you think it, in a way which i think uh underpins the emotional density of it but gets you gets yeah gets you over the hump of thinking you know rogue style what nonsense
1: is this tom do you want to add something to that i mean also i think that there's a there is a there is a more kind of lyrical um trend in science fiction anyway there's a there's a strand to science fiction which which is kind of like much more the the fiction and the big idea and the high concept and the and the sort of pitch than than it is the science and and I don't know whether in 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 this period of science fiction um there was this division between hard and soft, which came in certainly in the the sixties and seventies where but the science is wrong was like a, a genuine big criticism you mentioned that it's it felt like an adventure story to you a bit just a good old fashioned kind of boy's yarn kind yeah of. i mean i think i think because as mark says it's 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 told from a ten-year-old boy's perspective. It's um, and and so there's not really a sense of despite the enormous desolation that's implicit, that's kind of lurking at the fringes of the story. It doesn't. When I was reading it, I didn't feel a sense of, of particular risk. I got the feeling quite early on that things were going to turn out okay. For you know, and actually part of the kind of tease of the story, it's it's not so much what's going to happen, but how on earth can things turn out okay in this? You know, when you've when you've raised the stakes to this degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what I meant when I when I said adventure story, and that it's one of these things where you know that there's going to be, you know, people are going to get home to the nest for for tea. Oh, but <laughs> but then in the end, they in in fact the nest, yeah, but, they they have to leave exactly, it. and then it, it does. I mean, this is actually the the, the clever twist, the, the the sort of sense of doubt that comes in where it's like, okay, actually the the kind of playtime is over for the whole family. It's like, right, you you know, you've got to come indoors now. You've had your and the, the, frontier farm, but
0: before that twist comes at the end, when um, when the when the scientists come in, it, there's sort of several genres knocking around inside this story, and you do, you do get the feeling it's actually going to turn out to be a very different kind of
1: story than it is. Well, what I'm saying is that when reading it, I I got the feeling that that's something that 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 playing with, but I as a reader, I wasn't feeling no, it's going to turn out like a cosmic horror story. I thought, you know, because you know the human imagination, which is what's keeping them alive, is also generating all kinds of fears and terrors and and. And there has to be a reason for this like meaningless cosmic thing to have happened. It does. You do get the feeling that, uh,
0: at least the little boy certainly, bo- has these images that, that these that the dead are going to come back to life. It's almost going to be a zombie uh, movie. And then he gives you this huge fake out when not only do they not go back to the nest, but it's not cosmic, It's not a cosmic horror
1: story at all. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was. It was. It was science fiction all along. <laughs>
2: When i was younger um specifically there's a, a novel called the wanderer which is in fact about a rogue planet which appears next to earth and causes all sorts of mayhem it's has a similar kind of something awful's happening but it's done in quite a playful way and uh, so in that sense it's familiar but the stories that he's probably best known for and the the thing that he's probably best known for is inventing the term sword and sorcery and writing a series of stories about uh about a northern barbarian called Farad whose name <laughs> is like written to be unpronounceable and a small slender thief called the gray Mouser, who have all sorts of adventures involving wizards and treasure and um brassy wenches and
0: uh so that and, that could that sounds like it couldn't be more different
2: well, it, I think because I think this story has, ultimately, it's more of a fairy story than it is a science fiction story. I I think there is a similarity, but yes, the the landscape is is uh, distinctly different. No, sorry, what you said? This is more of a fairy story. Well, that's why. That's what I was gradually because essentially, I think when the scientists arrive and say this is impossible, what what this is about is is really, I think, about the power of storytelling, actually. And the child is is playing with all these ideas about what could be happening, which presumably, where else can this have come from? It comes from the stories his dad has told him. He has had no other cultural input at all. And so he's trying to make sense of this very grim situation based on something as slender as his relationship with his father. And that's another reason why I think it's quite important that, the mother is actually a bit order combat in this story, that it it really is to do with this storytelling sort of thing. And that's where the sort of warmth of it comes. And I think uh, it's also the the lyricism of it, the fact that it kind of starts with its own title. And titles aren't necessarily... Um, I mean, there are science fiction writers who are good with titles, but not all titles of science fiction books are that great. But I think this story is particularly resonant, and you know, as soon as people hear it, they remember the, what the story was. Everything that it's about is condensed into the this sort of phrase, this impossible phrase, a pail of air.
0: Mm-hmm. Is this the kind of story that people would have been expecting in a science fiction magazine in 1951?
2: Um, I I think probably I think it's quite sort of surprising but I think what's surprising about it is its deftness as opposed to its content. I think there were absurdist stories and there were fantastic stories and there were hard science stories and these were all strains which had been developed and you know certainly there would be sort of seasons of fashion for one and then another and whatever he's part of a younger generation who arrived at these stories and, and I think started thinking there's lots we can do with this stuff Um, he's not known, he's not considered to be part of what's known as the New Wave, which arrived in the 60s. But he is considered to be a sort of godfather of it in a slightly curious way because actually his stories, I mean, as I was saying, his stories are sword and sorcery, which the New Wave was kind of the opposite of. There was a subsequent wave, big wave of fantasy. But there's something about his approach, his relationship to... I think to the way he deals with emotions, actually, even if it is in this very playful way, which is not a new wave thing, particularly. There were playful new wavers, but it's it had a sort of door, doorness.
1: I mean, his 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 fantasy <laughs> writing, the the thing that he he brought to fantasy was this a, a similar kind of like playing with genre, bending the the ideas and expectations to the genre, and actually mm-hmm. creating a way in which fantasy could work on a a kind of street level sense, which fantasy had, had come to mean these kind of quite high sort of medievalist romances and then the tolkien thing which is is kind of introducing a kind of everyman perspective into fantasy and then um leiber goes a step further almost and kind of makes his fantasy stories very much about the social the 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 thing that's famous about the farad and the gray mouse story i never knew it was pronounced i've always pronounced it <laughs> Fafurd <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs> if it's how it's written but um but yeah the the thing that's kind of famous about them is that they they're kind of quite like not gritty exactly but they they're very social they're very street level and so it's mm-hmm. it's similarly mm-hmm. kind of you know putting different kinds of emotions in not that he's a, a; it's not so much the presence of emotion but it's the it's kind of playing with what emotions to expect from a genre from a style and and I think that's something that you can see in this story.
0: Mark you mentioned there's a story called Lot by Ward Moore.
2: Yeah there's a, there's a pair of stories called Lot and Lot's Daughter which are, I think, very interesting because they're from the same period and they're interesting because they're such a contrast. And again, they're the only characters in it, really, I mean, pretty much, are a family. In Lot, it's literally hours after the rockets, the thermonuclear rockets, have started to fly and the family have jumped in the car and are driving out of the city, as are many others it's all it's quite sort of suburban and there's a lot of bickering in the car and and the kids seem to be rather annoying and at a particular um sort of truck stop really the mum and the two sons get out to get some candy bars or whatever they're getting and uh the dad just drives off with the daughter and that's kind of i mean the the story is that he's made this you know decision in a post-apocalyptic world that actually survival is going to be better without his two annoying sons and his wife who he's never really been that happy with it's rough and and the under under sort of lying thing which is not made clear in story one at all but must occur to you is you know what's the role of the daughter <laughs> in this post-apocalyptic world and in fact what well, lots daughter is is about exactly that. It's whatever it is, eight or nine years later, the family now consists of three people, which is dad, daughter, stroke wife, and little son. And the same story plays out again, which is that the daughter. I mean, and the, they don't appear to have encountered anyone else since then. They'd sort of found somewhere to camp. They've used up their supplies. They've learnt to hunt in a sort of very clumsy way. She's brought up this boy. They have this not terribly uh, loving relationship. The daughter's very pragmatic about the situation, but, you know, is clearly still not that happy on what's (laughs) gone on. And and essentially she deserts, she leaves him with the son and some other people appear and she just goes off with them and deserts him. And the very final thing is him with the son uh, saying, oh, you know, Eric has had to, had to go off somewhere for a while, um, you know, let's go fishing or something like that. And so there's these kind of layers of, of bleakness and bleak decision faced with, this, f- faced with this post-nuclear world, what happens to the nuclear family. And in Lot and Lot's Daughter, Wardmore is very kind of harsh about the, well, in the, the sense- things that he thinks people will actually decide.
0: Well, in in a sense, it sounds like this could be showing you what happens if they don't get if they don't get to leave the nest. you yeah. suddenly are faced with some pretty bleak uh, decisions. But this story, they they get out. They don't have to face that part of what does the last yeah. remaining uh, family on Earth do.
2: Which story, which story don't uh, they have to face it? Uh, pale of Yeah, air. exactly. They, they, we don't see the bit where they're having to get that through that thing. And the, the children don't, I think, exist at that point. I think it's just the mum and dad, isn't it, to start with? The children post-date. the. Uh, yeah, he, he,
1: he says that he's going to decide to have children. Yes.
2: And and there's that curious little bit where he, you know, he's, the father's will wavers when the daughter is born. And, I mean, although the Pale of Air predates Lot and Lot's daughter by a couple of years, and Libra is thinking, well, you know, what would be going through the father's head at this point, that this is all the human race that there is. The thing that he's thinking is, like, what's this daughter been born to? Yeah. And, as I say, I think that these subcurrents are part of what he's playing with. He doesn't want to be... I mean, I I think that the, the Wardmore story is... Is interesting, but it's also quite heavy-handed, actually, and you can't quite work out what his attitude is to this central character. And I think the reason there's two stories is he changed his mind. He wrote the first one thinking, you know, oh, I ha ha, I shall rub their face in the bleakness of the situation, and it's all about the father as being is is the realist, and the the mum is the fantasist, and that's why he has to leave them behind because that kind of fancy not facing reality means that they have to be jettisoned. But then in the second story. I think he's beginning to rethink. Actually, you know, who is the fantasist here? Is the dad who thinks they can survive and thinks this, this sort of a situation where he can decide his daughter is his next wife is manageable? Who's who's the fantasist after all?
0: Well, it's it's it sounds to me that it's it's a bit of a nightmare about what happens if um, children are not allowed uh, not allowed to become their own people with their own families and their own lives, mm. and in a pale of air it's really to me a story about leaving the nest at the end literally um it's a it's a as you said tom it's an adventure story it's a story about a, a young boy realizing that there's a big world out there and that he's going to get to participate in it um yeah
1: but you know being scared about that
0: yeah maybe. there's a curious moment at the end isn't there when it's suddenly you know help has has arrived and and well you think that's the end of the book
1: but yeah. it's not quite the end and they the whole family yeah, sort they're of, not, they're not, and then, and actually they say, you know, well, um, we might be keeping the place open as a survival school or we might go and see if there's, you know, we think there might be a colony in the Congo or something. And I,
2: I think the idea that they want to build in, the, I mean, the family who have survived this want to build in their own story into the bigger story of humanity. Yeah. They don't want to simply be co-opted into the Los Alamos survival project as if what they've gone through... Turns out to be, you know, it's got them back into this thing. But, but it, this is a real deal. They've been through, yeah. you know, ten. I mean, the parents have been through more than ten years, but the the son has been through ten, and the daughter presumably like six or seven. I don't know how old she. I mean, is.
1: it's it's yeah, it's wanting your story to mean something in the in the bigger picture, and that's a theme. I mean, a lot of because a lot of science fiction is about, you know, stereotypically is a, a literature written by and for people who don't fit in. And so there's this tension at the end of the story about well now it's time to fit in again you know you can come along and it's like and that's that's not the sci-fi way dude
2: I think there's an interesting um development here I and mean, one of the things I think about this story that makes me feel it's more modern is the way it actually ties up to strands in um in the way Doctor Who has been being written recently in the last few years it's not original to Doctor Who but it's quite a recent development which is that people in these adventure stories, actually still continue to have intimate contact with their families or their boyfriends left at... Yeah. That, that instead of it being cosy world, space, lots of adventures, perhaps back to cosy world at the end and, and not really dealing with the trauma of separation, the, the, the new kind of story actually puts the two things, weaves the two things in, together... Buffy's actually set in Sunnydale and for half the time she's actually at school and having to do schoolwork as well as saving the world from demons. And in Doctor Who in the first series very sort of effectively they used the fact that Rose was able to phone her mum from a billion years in the future on her mobile. And so it sets these two, the the mundane world, the quotidian world shall we say, and the world of high glamour and adventure right against each other and these two sort of registers of emotion then are able to contrast and kind of point each other up in a in a quite a dramatic way i think
1: hello yukon 28209 yes this is candy Matson.
0: National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon Two Eight Two O Nine. Ladies and gentlemen, before we commence tonight's Candy Matson story, it's a very great pleasure to welcome as our distinguished guest this evening,
1: Tom. Do you think that the story is about storytelling in some way? One of the things about it is that it's its setting is very conducive to storytelling. If you um the sort of uh, location of a, a fairy tale is is a kind of like sort of, you know, around a fire, telling stories around a fire, passing on an oral tradition, that kind of thing. And that's the sort of, you know, the basic thing of storytelling and in fact probably set in quite a hostile environment. And Arthur Ransom's book, um, Old Peter's Russian Tales, it's 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 a, a book of short stories and the framing device is that it's an old man telling his two grandchildren stories within this tiny hut in a forest sort of surrounded by bears and walruses and who knows what Ro- <laughs> <laughs> roaming <laughs> land walruses. <laughs> well yeah scary stuff roaming the the belt no well <laughs> okay anyway we're not doing that book this time <laughs> roaming um and and that's that taps into something quite primal i think this this idea of you know the the sort of tiny family in the wild wood in the in the sort of in the hut and, and keeping each other going by telling stories stories which kind of demonstrate the one thing that you've got over the environment is that you can think your way your way through it and your way out of it and, and some, think,
0: some of the stories they tell are, are to for instance to keep the mother sort of on an even keel they're not necessarily, yeah yeah i mean in this, stories but maybe little
1: lies about in this context it's like you know there's a kind of Obviously if, if you're in this situation where everything you know's been taken from you, you've you've got to balance out do you remember with you know, we're gonna get through this with mm-hmm. so it's kind of comfort but also inspiration but also and then the that will translate to what you tell your your kids. And if you're suddenly the keeper of all human culture as as part is in this story, then the responsibility you know all stories come from you. And it's like the clocks a little bit yeah, But keep the, it going. But the interesting thing, yeah, you've, you've got to keep the, the spiritual fire of storytelling going <laughs> as well. But, the, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that the, the son, this is his story that he's telling. It's not the, the father telling this story. And, and as Mark was saying earlier, when the scientists come in and say, well, this is impossible, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, actually, it is impossible. And, and maybe the whole thing is just a story. Like perhaps they're all in Los Alamos. In this kind of what must be quite a restrictive brutal society and and he's you know he's ten he's kind of getting independent he's learning these skills and he's he's thinking himself into this kind of pioneer survival scenario so this is his story that he's getting to tell
2: one of the things that struck me about the setting is that, that it's actually quite um physically like the idea of reading under the blanket <laughs> that yeah. they're, they're in this little Um, space which is just wrapped around with carpets with, you know, it's actually a a fire but it might be as well be the torch that you're holding to the book as you're reading to yourself and I think there is a sense of uh, just as early in the story he talks about tossing the courage ball backwards and forwards there's a sense of passing on the storytelling ball Um, it's not explicitly said but as you say it's, it's his story it's the boy's story that he's now telling but he's telling about the story that was before and uh, i think there's a there's a curious um sense in which the it, it's a fairy story where the magic that keeps them alive is actually the storytelling that that in fact it's saying well you know there's this science which is all far off and possibly broken and vanished forever and the only thing that's keeping us going is this inc- this incredibly slender thread of the relationship between the dad and the son which is,
1: which is it's kind of I mean the, the setting is also quite cave like and you're, you're going back there to a sort of dawn of man idea where like the thing that the, the thing that was incredibly powerful and was actually a, you know that sets man apart from the animals is the imagination is the ability to draw animals on the cave walls and to have these you know mm-hmm. make these shapes and have these these rituals and and things so we're kind of thrown right back to like civilization hasn't been extinguished but it's been returned to the kind of earliest most primal point it could possibly be be returned to
2: but in a sense the point where the boy uh shoulders the responsibility of storytelling is the point where childhood ends and i mean i know i certainly know from, wait, 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 how do you mean well I, I i remember very clearly from my own childhood the point at which I asked if my dad could actually stop reading to me because I wanted to hurry ahead and read the books for myself that still seems to me quite a sort of poignant point I mean more so now that I'm a grown-up myself and think back to the way he must have been feeling about this which must have been very mixed feelings which is that he really enjoyed doing this and always looked forward to it and suddenly I was saying actually I'd rather do it myself so on one hand you know, hurrah, I was able to read for myself, that was a good thing. But on the other hand, time's passing my, and...
1: My solution to this was, um, I used to force <laughs> my poor dad to read the same chapter of a story over and over again. Why would you do that? Because I liked the the feeling and the sort of texture of the experience of having my dad read a story. But I learned to read, I taught myself to read very young. And so I was sort of aware that, like, I wasn't actually the actual information content. I, I divorced from the experience.
2: I think that, as well as that, that there's there's a a sense that the transition is actually the opening up from this this small idea of the family, which it focuses on very sharply, and, and as we've said, quite unusually in in the sort of context at least of science fiction. Um, and what is intruding is this sense of a wider, more rational, scientifically based, bigger world, and the dad. Is uh, what, he was a scientist? He was a scientist. That's right. Life. But you you sense that there is a complicated ambivalence about. On one hand, you know things must move on, and and my son is is becoming an adult, and and these kind of um, mythical type stories no longer are applicable. We need to talk about more grown up scientific stories. But on the other hand, it is that's where it ends, and. And um, it's
1: the uh, it's also the, the the boy's sort of you know sexual awakening is is also contained in the story. He, yes, he yes. sees he sees the girl. He fantasizes that it's a girl. He then kind of revolts against the idea that it might be a girl, and and is kind of horrified by the feelings that he had when yeah. he thought it was a girl, and instead thinks it's a dark matter beast, which is actually a much safer thing <laughs> than a girl. And More then, it's <laughs> easier to admit, to <laughs> it. yeah, yeah, um, rather than the the white matter beast. <laughs> um, and then it's. And then kind of like, he, you know, and at the end, the the final sentence of the story is, hey, in 10 years, I'm going to be 20. So first of all, this whole future has suddenly opened up to him where he can he can admit to himself and imagine. And that's why it's a nice last line. Um, It's suddenly I can imagine another 10 years. But then also it's kind of like, actually, I am happy to think of the girl as a girl, you know, stepping back beyond my discomfort. I, I
2: think there's another there's another element to it at the end which which interestingly kind of ties in with our own project which is that you know we're looking back at these stories of of whatever they are 50 years ago with the sense that they are somewhere stored in our culture but have been lost to the sort of the buzz of current attention mm-hmm. because they're on a slightly old fashioned technology because they haven't been sort of reconfigured to be tv or uh, mp3s or or whatever it is um and i think one of the the strengths of this story is that he is that liber takes elements which are considered very sort of futuristic i mean it's not simply elements of 50s science but that he's projecting it forward to where this will take us so he's taking something like the idea that which had only quite recently been discovered that when you reduce um helium very close to absolute zero it does it has very curious physical properties it it crawls it does actually move against gravity it goes up slopes and it does things which are against the the normal the expected physics of and this this was only you know this was 10 years knowledge of only the last 10 years when he was writing this story um but what what he does is invest it with this potency of elements from a much earlier kind of tale so that he in his place in the context of 50s uh, science fiction pulp magazines is is going back to a story as Tom was talking about this kind of story you tell round a, um, round a fire in a cave about the threats and the possibilities of life as it had been in a, a much earlier technology of storytelling. And I think it's this sort of relay of potential and sensibility that's one of the reasons why this, is, this remains such a st- strong story.
0: Thank you, Tom Ewing and Mark Sinker. Next week we'll be discussing The Segregationist by Isaac Asimov, and our guest will be Alan Trawartha. Thanks very much for listening.